Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 21. This is our penultimate sermon on 1 Kings. That's your word for the day. It means second to last. We're almost finished with another book of the Scriptures. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative Word. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. With stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Let us go to the Lord and seek his blessing upon the reading and hearing of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us from your word, that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us in the hope of the gospel. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an old classic movie that was recently remade. 
It's a story of a man who owns a candy factory. And he sends out golden tickets to a bunch of children to come in and to observe firsthand what's going on in the factory. The man's name, of course, is Willy Wonka. And an interesting group of children get these golden tickets. They each have their own relatively severe character flaws. They also have character flaws that are exacerbated by their parents' inability to discipline them. There's one young girl who has a habit of just simply demanding whatever she sees. And if she gets the least resistance, she stamps her feet and says, But Daddy, I want it now! I have to have it now! And he, in order to quiet her, gives her whatever she asks for. But that doesn't just happen to children. One of my favorite commercials on all of television is a commercial where there's a man standing in an electronics store. And the salesman says to him, football season's coming up, 61-inch screen, stereo, beautiful. What do you think? And the man says, I'll take it, yeah. And then the camera pans to sort of a man pig. And this pig smacks the man's hand. It gives him a stern look. And he says, you're right, I don't need it. And the idea is he should be saving with his piggy bank. But you see, that's indicative of our society, isn't it? We all want what we want, and we want it now. So much so that all of you have heard in the news that we are in the midst of a housing crisis. It's not a crisis because we're in the middle of a depression. It's not a crisis because homes can't hold their value anymore. It's a crisis because we have had a generation of people that seek to buy more than they can afford because they can't wait a minute for it. You see, that's a character trait that we see in sinful human beings. We're going, we see it here this morning in Ahab. And so what we're going to see is Ahab and the results of his demand to have it now, regardless of the consequences. We're going to see and contrast two kings. The first is an unjust, selfish king. That is, King Ahab. And then the second is a just, merciful king. And that is the Lord. So let us look then first at the unjust, selfish king. That is, King Ahab. Ahab has a problem, and very soon that problem will become Naboth's problem. And then, soon after that, that problem will become all of Israel's problem. You see, he is about to make a failed attempt to close a deal. He sees something he wants, he puts on his best sales pitch, but it just doesn't get the job done. It's a failed attempt to buy the vineyard of Naboth, of Jezreel. Now, first, we need to remember the context of our story here. We recall that last week we looked at 1 Kings 20, and we saw that God had showed us His reality. That sometimes we look out and we think that reality is one way when it's really not. We think that life should work one way when it really doesn't, because God is God. And he is the God of the universe. We also have been treated for the last several weeks 
to an in-depth study of, of Ahab's lack of character. So we know exactly who this man is who makes this demand. He is certainly not a wise, thrifty, kind, generous, patient man. He is the opposite of everything I have just said. We also know the state of life in Israel. Israel is a place now where it is dangerous to serve the Lord. If you're a prophet, you're on the king's hit list. If you seek to serve the Lord, you're likely at a bare minimum to be persecuted and made fun of. You may even be killed. So the context here for our story is, we might say, worse than anything that we experience. So we need to keep that in mind when we think about what's going on with Naboth. The request itself may seem on first blush to be one that is reasonable. I mean, after all, Naboth is offered by Ahab either money or a vineyard that's better than the one that he has. What could be more reasonable? Why don't you liquidate your assets, Naboth? You could probably take a nice vacation on the Red Sea. Or why don't you get a vineyard that produces 25% more grapes? What a generous offer from King Ahab. But you see, that's not the way the Bible wants us to see it. Because you see, the request is, first of all, all about Ahab. You see, Naboth only matters because he's Ahab's neighbor. If he hadn't lived next door to Ahab, Ahab could care less about Naboth. He doesn't care that Naboth might be better off. He doesn't care how long this property's been in his family. And to be honest with you, Ahab doesn't care about God's law. Because God's law tells the Israelites that they are not to sell their property to others unless there is a dire emergency. Because they had their property on loan, literally, from God. They did not have strict title to their property. It has been called, over and over again in the Old Testament, their inheritance. That's why Naboth uses that language. You see, it's also all about Ahab, because if we're honest and we look through this, he doesn't even really need this vineyard. Now imagine this. Ahab gets very upset because in his summer home, he can't expand out and get a garden. It's not even his main house, which is a palace. It's not even his main summer house. He needs a place that maybe he can walk or grow a few tomatoes. And He certainly doesn't lack for food. But he sees something, it catches his fancy, and again, it's all about him. But it's not just all about Ahab. It's also all about now. You see, Ahab wants instant gratification. He could have perhaps waited and gone back to Naboth next week, next month. He could have been like the widow in the New Testament that keeps going back in order to convince the judge to change the case. But no, Ahab can't wait for that. One setback and his world caves in. How horrible life is. No matter that he's the king of Israel, no matter that he's the wealthiest man in Israel, no matter that he has a palace, no, he didn't get his garden. How horrible is life? How miserable? How can he go on? But you see, if we're honest, that's often how life is in 21st century America, isn't it? 
It happens to all of us. To the young ones. Life just can't possibly go on if I can't get dessert. All of life has to stop. I can't imagine how I could survive without a cookie. No matter, you had dessert at lunch. But it also happens with older children too, doesn't it? You've applied to five colleges, got into four, but you didn't get into your first choice. You can't imagine, your whole life is over. You're never going to get married. You'll never have children. You'll never find a job. Life is over. And we go into a large depression. It also happens with moms and dads too, doesn't it? You go and you find the perfect house and you put a bid in on it just to find out someone put in a bid four hours earlier. Oh, we can't possibly ever find a place to live. We're never going to survive now. Life is over. Happens to churches too. Occasionally you might have a setback, say, with a building program. Oh no, we'll never be able to minister to the community now. The world's going to cave in. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a bit of this Ahab mentality in all of us. We need to face it head on. Because you see, Ahab wants what he wants, and he wants it now. And what's the reaction to his request? Well, the reaction is very interesting. Naboth says no, but he says no in a very peculiar way. It's actually so peculiar that Ahab doesn't use the same language when he reports what has been said. Do you notice that? Ahab asks Naboth for that vineyard, and he says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And then Jezebel comes back and says, What happened? And Ahab says, He said he wouldn't give me his vineyard. You notice the difference? You see... Naboth is intentionally using covenantal language. He is going back to the time in which Israel came into the promised land. And the promised land was allotted literally by lots. If you were of the tribe of Judah, you lived in a certain place. You didn't say, you know, I don't like the grass so much here, not so many shade trees. I'll go live over there. No, this was Judah's inheritance. This was Benjamin's inheritance. This was Dan's inheritance. And you went and lived there. It's a covenantal mentality. This land is about more than money. This land is about more than vines. It is a tie to his family and to the faithfulness of the Lord in his family. Much like we saw in the baptism this morning. It's about more than water. It's about more than words. It's covenantal language that binds us to God. But you see, Ahab doesn't understand that. His response is not covenantal. His response is literally whining and sulking. Parents, you've never experienced that in your homes, have you? No. You've probably never experienced it with teenagers either, right? They grow out of it. No. You've probably never experienced it with your husband or your wife. Well, if your home is anything like mine... It occurs in all of us. We sulk, we whine when we don't get our way and we think we should. And so what happens is, do you notice Ahab actually initially obeys God's command? 
Naboth says no, and Ahab accepts it after a manner of speaking. He obeys the law of God that says you're not, as a king, to take the property of others. But it's not a proper obedience, is it? We've all experienced that in others and in ourselves, haven't we? Improper obedience. He acts like a child. I mean, the language here in the English and in the Hebrew is very vivid. Now, picture this. You can play, you can play it out in your own homes. He doesn't get his way. He stomps off, kicks the dirt, slams the door of his bedroom, lies on his bed, flops down, and turns his head toward the wall and won't talk to anyone and won't eat. Ever seen that before? Doesn't sound much like a king, does it? The covenant leader of God's people. He's acting like a child. Do you ever act like that? Maybe you don't on the outside. But what about on the inside? When you don't get your way. When things should go a certain way and they don't. And it's not right that they don't. That's Ahab thinking. We want it, and we want it now, and God should give it to us. Well, Ahab sulks like a child, but thankfully for him, not for Naboth, his wife is a bit more of a man than he is. She comes up with an ingenious plot. She comes up and she asks him what's wrong, why aren't you eating? She's used to him whining and sulking when he doesn't get his way, so she knows something's wrong, and he says, I didn't get my vineyard. And she says... Wait a minute. Who's the king here? You see, she comes from an entirely different worldview. You see, in the Phoenician worldview, in the worldview where God doesn't exist, in that reality where she's from, if the king wants something, he gets it. The king isn't under law. The king's word is law. And she says to him, wait a minute here. (laughs) You don't worry your pretty little head. I'll get you the vineyard. It's very emphatic in the Hebrew. She says, I'll get it for you. And she comes up with a great plan. And very matter-of-factly, our author lays it out for us. She says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send letters off to the elders. We're going to find two bad witnesses. We're going to put Naboth in the right place at the right time. We're going to accuse him. And before the ink is dry on the charges, he'll be stoned and dead. Case closed. It's almost like dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. How many witnesses were there? Two. Where did they sit? Opposite Naboth. Where was Naboth? He was at the head of the people. Do you notice that? There's almost no embellishment here. It's just bing, bang, boom. One, two, three. There's a contrast here, though, isn't there? Ahab stands by while his wife sets up this plan to get this vineyard to show no mercy to Naboth, to run him not only off his land, but out of life itself. And that's when, if we look back, and our eyes are not frozen by the big number 21 that starts this chapter, we realize that we've just had described to us Ahab showing mercy to a pagan king that has attacked him, Ben-Hadad. And yet he won't show mercy to one of his own subjects who has done nothing wrong to him. Do you see the irony there? The contrast? Do you see what sin can do to you? As my good friend has said to me, sin makes you stupid. 
You do stupid, selfish things when you are seized by sin. And this is what happens to Ahab. And Jezebel sets up this ingenious plot, and it's so good, it's not only foolproof, it actually has religious undertones. Do you see what she does? She uses the very laws that God has established in his word for injustice. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been disturbed when things that are supposed to promote justice do things that aren't fair? When you hear that somebody is abused in a court system or the police can't protect someone from an attacker or a stalker. When the very system that is supposed to protect them, perhaps supposed to protect you, is used as a weapon against you. This is how diabolical Jezebel is. She breaks out her copy of the Torah, probably gathering dust somewhere under a plant. It's probably propping up a plant in their palace. And she says, okay, let's see. We need capital offenses. Blasphemy. Bingo. Okay, wait a minute. Two witnesses. That's what the book of Deuteronomy says. Two witnesses. So i got to find two men. Two worthless men, the text says. Two men who aren't worth a penny. We're going to get them out and bribe them and go and get this done. Now, you see, this is something that we should, in a sense, come to expect. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 21, that we should not be surprised when a fiery trial comes our way. Our Lord himself tells us in Mark 13 that there will be governors and rulers that will drag his people up before them and accuse them of all sorts of things. And they will be persecuted. This is something that we have seen throughout the ages. This is something we should be used to, seeing the people of God attacked in an ingenious plot. And then we see that there's no help to be found because there is a spineless people around him. Now, this is not just the Ahab and Jezebel show. You know, as a matter of fact, they're just pulling the strings. They don't actually even do the killing or the stealing. Jezebel sends off letters, and the elders of this town and these witnesses... Go along with it. The elders are complicit with what's going on. They get this and they could very easily say, no, we're not going to do this. They could warn Naboth. Naboth, you better sell the vineyard. We don't know if we can protect you. You may want to run. No, they're scared. Have you ever felt scared when someone put you in a difficult position? Maybe you felt that to be honest at the office might cost you your job. Maybe you thought it might cost you security and money. Maybe you thought it might cost you the love of your family. You see, part of the lesson to be learned today is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called sometimes to make difficult decisions at personal cost. The people of God must also be a people of guts, willing to stand up for what they believe. You see, these elders should have stood up, even if it was the cost of their lives, and it would have been recorded for all of eternity, not that they were cowards who let a good man die, 
but that they had stood up to the forces of evil and held fast the good profession of faith in the Lord. But they didn't. They were complicit. There's also these false witnesses, these worthless men that come forward. And that reminds us of something else. There's another place in the Scripture where we see two worthless witnesses. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 59 to 61, where Matthew writes the following. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Two false witnesses came up to give false testimony against our Lord. That should also be a reminder and a comfort to you. If you feel like you have been in the place of Naboth, abused, the course of injustice has played out in your life, know that there is another truer Naboth, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who had injustice played upon him, who had falsehood thrown his way. He knows exactly how you feel. He did it for you. He calls you today to stop worrying about self-justification, about having your good name go forward, and to seek Him and His righteousness, for which He willingly laid down His life. This is the spineless people. Then the second half of our chapter moves to something, it almost seems like an entirely another story. It's the story not of an unjust king, but of a just and merciful king. The first thing that we see about this king is that he is the king who sees. He is the king who sees. Verse 17 begins, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down. The word comes to Elijah. Now you have to remember that this plot was a complete success. No one ratted out Ahab or Jezebel. They're too afraid to. Everything has gone completely to plan. So much so that right now, Ahab is standing in that vineyard saying, well, well, we'll take that tree out and we'll put some plants in there and we'll put some dirt over there and we'll do this. He's plotting out his garden. It's a complete success. No one sees, no one knows. But God. God sees and he knows that Naboth is dead. We're reminded of that fact because in verses 13 through 16, we're told five times in these short three verses that Naboth is dead. We know exactly what has gone on. And Elijah hears the word from the Lord. Elijah's not spying out. He's not super prophet. He doesn't fly in to save the day. He just hears from the Lord that the Lord has a task for him. Because the Lord sees everything that is going on. He misses nothing. Look at what the Lord says to Elijah. He says, you tell Ahab, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? God knows that a double crime has been committed. Not just murder, but theft. 
theft that's been made easier by murder. God is watching Ahab right as he is glorying in his victory. God sees everything. But God doesn't just see and look, because God is actually behind his word as well. He doesn't just inform Elijah what's going on. He tells him to go down and act. And there's a a little bit of a play on words here. After the deed is done, Jezebel says to Ahab, you need to arise and take possession. And God says to Elijah, arise and go down and tell Ahab. Those two phrases differ in the Hebrew only by one letter. Arise is exactly the same, and those two other verbs are only different by one letter. God is deliberately saying, I know what the plan was, and your schemes are nothing against me. He sends Elijah down. Because he's not just the God who sees, he's also the God who judges. And so in verse 20, Ahab says to Elijah, Oh, have you come here now, my enemy? You see, his conscience has been pricked. He knows he's done something wrong, and he sees Elijah, and he knows no good can come of this. Even Ahab is smart enough to put two and two together. (laughs) And he does not want to see Elijah. And Elijah comes down, and he pronounces God's judgment upon Ahab. And he tells him the nature of the judgment. He says first in verse 21 that the judgment is coming. He says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. He says, Payback is coming. Judgment is coming. You don't know when, but it's coming. And he says, by the way, it's very sure. He says, judgment is coming and judgment is sure. Look at verse 22. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam and like the house of Baasha. He gives him some historical context. He says, you realize why you're king? Because I judged these other kings. Just as surely as you know I did it then, I will do it now. He leaves no room for doubt. Judgment is coming, judgment is sure, and judgment is sharp. Look at verse 23. He says, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone who belongs to Ahab, who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open, shall the birds of heaven eat. He says, you won't even get the benefit of a proper burial. Dogs are going to eat your corpses. Birds are going to pluck out your eyes. It's a very sharp judgment from God. It gives him the reasons for these judgments. Ahab, if there's anyone in the Old Testament that deserves to have that kind of horrible punishment thrown on them, it's Ahab. Don't believe me? Look at verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Nobody sinned as badly as Ahab did. No one. This is the judgment coming down. God sees and God judges. And we expect it to go like that. But then something happens that's an interesting twist. 
You see, we expect here, if this was a movie or if this was a novel, that the next frame or the next chapter describes the ignominious defeat, destruction, and death of Ahab. Right? Right away. But that's not what happens. Because, you see, God sees and God judges, but God is a king who also delights in mercy. He delights in mercy so much that it shocks us. Because, you see, what Ahab does is he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he fasts. And the Lord comes to Elijah and he says, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself? I'm going to postpone this disaster. I won't bring it in his days. I'll bring it in the days of his sons. Ahab does here what we might call a temporary repentance. It is a serious repentance. It is an obvious repentance, but it is not one of lasting fruit. Do you see the importance of perseverance here? Do you see how we're called not to have temporary Ahab repentance? That if we are to be right with God, it must be a permanent repentance that bears out fruit in our lives? That it can't be a flash in a pan? Perhaps that's what you've done in your life. Things get hard and you say, oh, I'll never do that again. Just protect me, Lord. And then a month later, you forget. And someone in your family gets sick and you say, I'm sorry, Lord, that I did that. Please just forgive me and I'll be perfect the rest of my life. But two months later, you forget about that. You see, God wants to call you to a permanent repentance, to a permanent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not a temporary short-term fix. That has no lasting value. It doesn't save Ahab. You see, Ahab tears his clothes, but he doesn't tear his heart. Everything is external. God cares about the heart. That's where he wants to see repentance. And so he postpones this judgment, which puts the focus of God upon mercy. And we see this and we scratch our heads. And perhaps if we're honest with ourselves, we experience a Jonah-like surprise. God, why don't you smite Ahab? He's a miserable excuse for a human being. Don't you know he's just playing you? Don't you know that he's going to turn his back on this repentance before you can say lickety-split? And we can be angry with God for showing mercy until we realize there but for the grace of God go I. You see, God didn't need to have patience with us. He doesn't need to persevere with us. He doesn't need to show us mercy. We're no better than Ahab in our sin. Sure, Ahab may have more sins, but we have more than enough to damn us. We should look at this mercy and see the way that God is merciful to us and praise Him that He delights in mercy, that He's a God of mercy first and of judgment and justice second. That He's such a God of mercy that He sent His only Son to die upon a cross that we might have spared. We might be spared from his justice. But we also need to remember that this is not a cancellation of judgment. It's just a postponement. It's like when you go to watch a baseball game and in the third inning the rain comes down and they don't cancel the game but they reschedule it 
for later on in the season. You still come back. They're still going to play. It's still going to count. It'll, all the statistics will still count. You don't get your money back. It's just postponed. That's what God's doing here. He's merely postponing judgment. You see, Ahab now is going to be treated merely as a normal sinner. Not a spectacular sinner. He won't be struck down instantly. But it doesn't look good for Ahab. Just like it doesn't look good for anyone who rejects God's mercy. You see, better to be Naboth and be deprived of your life, your livelihood, and your property. But have God vindicate you because you know him in covenant faith than to be a successful, popular, wealthy, temporary repenting Ahab. Search your heart for that this week. Where is your repentance before God for your sins? Where is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it the primary thing in your life? Or does it come somewhere down the line when it's convenient? You see, we've seen last week God's reality. Now we've seen God's judgment and God's truth. Next week we're going to see the execution of God's judgment and justice. For he is the one and only true God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this word. We pray that you would make it evident to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is he powerful and mighty to conquer all of the oppression and injustice in your life, brought about even by your own sin? Then hear his blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.